Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Big round of applause for these two women, Amy Ramikis, Antoinette Latouf. Uh, Amy's had no sleep. <laughs> Have you had much sleep, Antoinette? I had eight hours of sleep. I she slept went to well. bed early. Yep. She figured she'd work it out in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Who was surprised at any point last night? Who was like, what the heck is going... What? What's going on here? Go on, be honest. Who was surprised... As who, it unfolded last night. What who the was hell? overjoyed? Who was relieved? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There was, there was definitely a reckoning coming to, uh, to the government. But I think the most relieving thing, we were just talking about this backstage, was that you could wake up feeling pr- pride in your fellow Australian. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest... I was worried that people were just going to vote like selfish, insular assholes, but they didn't. But they didn't. Like, and so I've woken up thinking, thank you for not being a selfish, insular asshole, Australia. And, and, the, and the best thing is that it, it's not that it's a Labor government, it's that it's a Labor government with checks and balances that Australia has gone, we are done with the two-party representation, we are done with you taking our seats for granted, we are done with you taking our vote for granted and doing what you think needs to happen in this country and we are going to have a voice in the parliament again and it's going to come from our local communities Mm. and we're going to stand up and make you pay attention to us and just well done, Australia. Big round of applause. (laughs) Amazing, amazing time. Now, um, all those politicians last night of various political persuasions who looked shocked with how things were unfolding, if they had read this book, Amy Ramikis, on reckoning, yeah, that's what happened, or they had read this book, How to Lose Friends and Influence White People, they might have had some idea of what was going on in Fowler. They might have had some idea of what was going on in the teal seats. They might have had some idea of what was going on in Brisbane, in well-to-do areas of Brisbane. How good is Queensland? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Where uh, where, uh, people in very expensive houses who I'm sure many of them would have voted Liberal their whole lives have voted Green uh, for all the reasons that Amy outlined. So... But again, like... And just, I know we're going to talk about this, but is anyone surprised that in an area where their houses were underwater four (laughs) weeks ago, went, you know what, I don't think this is working for me. Like, but the government was. I love that. Antoinette, we should do, because we're Brisbane girls, we have to tell you about Brisbane, whether you like it or not. Okay, go ahead. Do you know there's a thing about Queenslanders where, um, I'm sure Ellen does this too, when someone says, where are you from, you just say Queensland. You don't, you don't say, like, where in Queensland. You just go Queensland. Yeah. Where in, you ask someone in New South Wales and they'll, they'll tell, tell you. the you. suburb. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and what school they, what went, school to. they went to. Yeah. So, but Queenslanders are like, Queensland. And then when somebody goes, oh, which part? Then you have to say the southeast. And then you have to say, you know, whereabouts in the southeast. And then you have to apologise for Pauline Hanson. Although maybe not anymore. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> um, but what's interesting is all those areas that went green, as you were just indicating, are on the river. Mm. Yeah. Got it? Yeah. 
Anyway, so this was supposed to be a discussion about personal and professional insights into challenging structural power, but it's not. It's about political power because personal power is political, professional power is political. And I think what we're going to talk about today is the impact of women, the impact of culturally and linguistically diverse communities rising up in this country and saying an emphatic no, as Amy was saying, uh, to the way things have been. So there was indeed a reckoning last night. And we want to talk to these women a little bit about that, about the books that they have penned, which really helps us understand the country that we're living in and the passion of people who live here. So I've got some questions written down. I reckon yours will be better. <laughs> Just quietly. So what we're going to do is we're going to put microphones at the front of this. Actually, they're there already. Why don't I sort of ask questions for, I don't know, 15 minutes and then we'll just break it up and, and you folks can start asking questions. So have a think about what you want to ask because I'd rather hear more from you than me, which is, you know, the more you hear from me, the more you'll agree with that. <laughs> it's a thing that happens to people. Um, let's um, start with you, Antoinette. Um, a book born out of frustration with the status quo. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that you were... You start the book by sort of dancing around this idea that you wanted to be liked and recognised and at the same time you wanted to make a difference and you understood that the conflict between those two things meant that other people could have power over you. Yeah, and that's when I came to the conclusion um, that I was okay being unpopular because I was okay being unpopular in a system that I thought wasn't fair and was a bit shit, which is why my, the, my book title is How to Lose Friends and Influence White People because I decided that well, just from precedence and what we saw with other high-profile cases in Australia, any time an Australian tried to talk about racism, anyone with a public profile... Oh, hi, Mum. And I, with a public profile, tried to challenge systemic racism, even have a, a very fair conversation. There were huge career repercussions. Um, they were trolled, they were maligned. And so I went into this knowing, okay, if things really need to change, it's probably going to make me unpopular among some people, um, but change is worth it. Um, power has, in history has never just been seeded. Like people don't just go, oh, okay, seem like a nice person, I'll do it. Um, it seems like the right thing to do. All of our freedoms that we enjoy um, as women, as people of colour, we've had to fight for. Um, and so that's, that's essentially, I let go of that tension of wanting to be liked um, and popular um, because I realised that to be impactful, you will be unpopular among some people, but that's okay because they're the people that were never in your corner and they're part of the systemic problems that need to be addressed. Hmm. Amy, you talk in, in the book on reckoning about that time in the political gallery, in the, in the gallery um, where um, uh, an alleged rape was, um, became known and there were, you, you write that there were people who understood what was going on politically and there are people who didn't understand what was going on and that you could kind of divide the world and the gallery into those two things. And it wasn't just uh, people who could understand politically, it were people who could understand from a human level what was happening that you could almost draw a line down, down the gallery and you had a lot of mostly women who either had very intimate experience with sexual assault and harassment or someone close to them had. And I'm sure that's true in this room as well. And then you had a lot of uh, the, the older men who didn't 
understand what exactly that moment meant. That when the Prime Minister said, the Prime Minister who, who, le who led this country up until Monday, said that he needed to have it explained to him in the context of his own daughters by his wife before he went, mm, maybe rape is bad and I should do something about this. I think that really was a moment in Australian politics because for a very brief, very brief moment in time, all of the shutters fell away in the gallery and you had people who went, my experience matters. I'm not going to pretend to have a false balance on this. I'm not going to pretend that this is just political. I'm not going to pretend that this only matters in this building because this matters. It mattered that the leader of this country did not understand that women do not feel safe walking around at night. It mattered. And so I think we had just a moment where you had experience count towards changing the national conversation. And that was, that was really a powerful moment for me. I would add to that. I mean, it all comes back to that lived experience and skin in the game. There were women in that building. Enough? No, we know. In powerful positions, not enough. In cabinet, certainly not enough. Um, but it was having people with lived experience in a decision-making capacity, in an, influential make, in an influential capacity, be it media commentators like yourself uh, or other parliamentarians who go, okay, I get this because I've lived it. Um, and then what happens, the problem is, what happens when you don't have people with lived experience making decisions, which is, has been a huge part of the problem. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a bunch of people who are far removed from the most vulnerable and marginalised people in this country mm -hmm. who are going, oh, seems okay from where we're sitting. Mm. I, don't, I don't really feel it. Um, and yeah, yeah and so... Yeah, ab absolutely. It's, an, it's definitely a call for more diversity mm -hmm. of voices and experiences. thoughts and experiences. And that was really... Um, that became really clear to me when I was... I was really upset over the um, imagine if it was your daughter's comment because um, the, second, the second time I was uh, sexually assaulted, I was only saved by a couple who drove past. They drove past me at first and they came back because one of them turned to the other and said, what if it was our daughter? We'd want somebody to help. And I had been lying on the side of the road, fighting for what I thought was my life, screaming for help, looking at cars that were going past as a man was on top of me, clawing at my clothes just begging for help and somebody only stopped and I'm grateful that they did, but they only stopped because they thought about their daughter, not about me. And so I was really upset about it. And a member of the government staff came into our, our office in The Guardian and was really happy with the Prime Minister's response because he thought it would play well out in the suburbs that people would go, would understand because they think of their families. And I was like, fuck, this is only political to you. Yeah. Like it's only politics to you. And Antoinette would have a million different stories and so would Ellen and so would everybody in this room. When power says to you, 
your experience doesn't matter because we're going to be able to play it off this way. And yeah. I, I think what's interesting also about that story is the couple who saw you when they looked at you, thank goodness, could imagine that you were there. Yeah, because I look like their daughter. Because you look like their daughter. Um, I mean, arguably, we've just seen an experience in this country where um, Tulee, not to be confused with Sally Situ. Um, <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, who's our new local member? Tuli uh, 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 apparently, maybe, didn't look like um, a cabinet minister or a future prime minister. But she looked like her electorate. Yeah. Um, you you also talk about who's who's allowed to speak. Um, we know on the drum that um, when Nidal Nguyen comes on and speaks about how this country could be better, she's told, well, you're a refugee and you should you be should grateful. Go, yeah, you go you back should. to where you came from if you don't like it. Yeah. So it's this, it's this idea of who gets to speak and who we can imagine uh, looks like a powerful person. Or looks like an authority figure. That's and usually it. the <clears throat> default is, uh, you know, a bloke called Andrew... Sorry for the Andrews in the room. Lovely name. Um, but it's a bloke called Andrew who went to a Sandstone University, um, who perhaps works at a think tank. That is the person of you know, an authority when it's a woman or a woman who's a refugee, a woman who's an indige Indigenous woman. If you have any other intersection, um, you're scrutinised so much more closely. You're told you're angry. Uh, you're you're fact-checked within an inch of your life. If you, for whatever reason, get a half a decimal point wrong, you're discredited, you're your, threatened online. Your experience makes you biased. Yeah, that's right. Oh, and you're told, I'm often told um, my parents are um, from the Middle East, uh, well, what about Saudi Arabia? Why don't you, you know, I'm talking about oh, whatever it is. I could be talking about climate change and I could, could be talking about the Great Barrier Reef. And they go, yeah, but what are you doing for women's rights in Saudi Arabia? I'm like, what? <laughs> um, like this huge whataboutism. You should be grateful to be here. You should not be complaining. You should know your place. You should be a model minority. There's no such thing as a model minority. It just pits us up against one another. So we all pretend to uh, to be the best. You know, if we if we follow the yellow brick road, we'll be given out you know hearts and promotions. It doesn't it doesn't happen that way. It's just to make sure that there's one bad minority. Because if there's a model minority, then there's there's someone that we can demonise and hate more. There's always a bad minority yeah. in this country. Mm. It's it's the story of of Australia since settlement. Mm. There is always a bad guy. And when someone else is the bad guy, the previous bad guy gets elevated up and that's how we keep the cycle and going. And it's terrible. I mean, it's all rooted in anti-blackness because the ongoing, you know, the colonisation, ongoing mistreatment of Indigenous people can sometimes be overlooked or forgotten when there's, a, I call it a disflavour of the month, you know, a community that there's a moral panic over. And from 2000, probably till about five years ago, it was the Middle Eastern community. Um, you couldn't say you were Lebanese, you couldn't say you were Muslim or you're from the Western suburbs or Lord forbid all three. But then when that moral panic and hysteria turned to African gangs, so-called African gangs in Melbourne, all of my community were like, oh, fucking thank God. Here you go. But then and just kind of, <laughs> and just stepped aside and go, if we retreat quietly, um, they go, they're going to stop demonising us. And, and, it, and it's awful because it's a, it's a survival mechanism, um, but it's, it's uh, playing into the problem and just being relieved that the spotlight's no longer on you. And, and as you say about you know, power in your book and, and who gets to hold it, if you're in power, if, if you know, if you're, you know, white, male, stale, gale, 
pale, <laughs> as, as Antoinette says in her book so, so eloquently. Um, you can say whatever you want and it's fine. If you're not, you can have a three-word Facebook post mm. and be chased out of the country. Yeah. Mm. 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 Um, I'm wondering about the... Um, and were you nearly ready for questions? Have you got some good questions in your heads? Show me if you've got a good question in your head. Hands in the so, okay, air. Okay, so show us if you've got an average question in your head. <laughs> We're taking those ones too. Yeah, there's a question there. Come on. Anybody else got questions? Okay, keep thinking for five minutes. <laughs> um, the, the role of having um, enough people so that, so that you don't go on the program and you are the voice of all people who are culturally and linguistically diverse. So good luck with that. How's that going to work out? Or you're in the newsroom where um, in you come, but like there's an objective way to do things, Antoinette. You understand that, don't you? And it's not influenced by the fact that I'm um, an Irish Catholic and so is everybody else in the room, right? That's an objective way to do it and you need to fit in with that. And if you can't go along with that, then you're getting it wrong. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be it can be really tiring. And um, what a lot of um, people of colour who have jobs with profiles or uh, media commentators, you know, Nidal talks about it, Yumi Steins talks about it, I talk about it. We often don't want to talk about race. We don't want to talk about inequality. We don't want, we, we, we want to be able to do our jobs, but it's difficult to just do your job in a system that is part of the problem, like the media, which is so often um, is part of that moral panic, uh, part of you know, I would argue that some outlets in this country's business model is fear and racism. Um, and, and so it's so hard to then go, oh, can I just look away? Can I just ignore the fact that when I walk into one of the ma- major news organisations in the country, other than the security guards at the front um, and the Latinos pushing the cleaning trolleys, there is not a single other person of colour in the entire room and they're deciding on the national agenda, they're deciding what stories we tell and how we tell them. Um, so... It's so easy, you want to look away and stop talking about it, but it's impossible to because it's it's an unfair burden that you put on yourself, but it means that if you don't, who will? But it also means that by always having to be the one to speak about things, to challenge things, you're essentially doing two jobs. You've still got your day job. You've mm. got to do your day job. And then you've got to kind of be a troublemaker and a bad brown person as well. Um, and I guess that's why some of the things in my book, they're about... Encouraging and giving tools to allies to help to help do the, the work as well. It's not. It shouldn't just be up to First Nations people. It shouldn't just be up to refugees and diverse communities to do this work. You all have a role to play. Um, you might lose some friends doing it, uh, but you'll make some new ones. Um, but yeah, so it's it's not it's not easy. Mm. What's the role of anger? Do you think, uh, Amy, in all of this? I love anger. It's my fav- <laughs> it's my favourite emotion um, when it's used. Correctly, like there is nothing more galvanizing than a righteous rage, and you can feel it. Like if you think right now about just an injustice or something that's unfair, like you can feel it in the pit of your stomach, and it just it energizes you, and it makes you want to do something to 
fix it. But if if it makes you want to do something, because sometimes anger can be so overwhelming and you can feel that the problem is so big um, and that any attempts are futile. Like anger can paralyse as well. True, it absolutely can, but I mean, and often, often has, but that's why I think people should embrace their anger. I think anger becomes paralysing when you're trying to subdue it, mm. when you're trying to not show that you're angry if you're, you know, standing next to the leader of the country and you're unable to put a smile on your face, (laughs) for instance. Um, You know, like, there is... I mean, obviously I'm I'm a white woman, so I am speaking from the perspective of a white woman, but there are so many times when I'm told to sit down and be quiet and to be nice. Mm. And my my grandmother, a Russian-Lithuanian woman who went through two wars and lost children and had to restart her life more times than any anyone could ever imagine, used to say to me that niceness isn't a personality trait, it's oppression. And she was right. If you're telling someone to be nice, you're telling them to shut the fuck up. (laughs) Like, that's what you're doing. You're telling them to play nicely. Don't make waves. If you sit at the table, you have to have all your table manners and they'll come to you when they're ready. They'll come to you when you're being rational. Don't be too emotional. Don't be hysterical. You need to be able to be articulate. You need to be able to argue your points in this very rational, serious matter. And then, then we might pay attention to you. And it's absolute bullshit. Yeah. It's, it is. It is it's bullshit. Just, it's just tone. Yeah, it's, it's just tone policing, and um, it's a culture in which certain people's anger is more palatable and acceptable than others. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, Paul Kelly you know, can be angry about yeah, anything yeah. he wants, and he gets the front every, page every, of the newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. Sky commentators can be angry and bark down the television, um, but then if somebody else says something, if it's a woman, she's homo- emotional or hysterical. Um, if she's a black woman, wow, she's. Um, she's seen as a threat or dangerous. Like, it's just who's allowed to be angry. Paul Murray literally said on Sky News when it became obvious that the coalition was not going to form government, the resistance starts tomorrow. Can you imagine if anyone other than a white man in the conservative media said that publicly. But yet, yet, that's the camp that's the first to decry cancel culture. We can't say anything. We're walking on eggshells, which Scott Scott Morris was a couple of weeks ago talking about walking on eggshells. Exactly. Mm. It's it's absolute nonsense. It's who's allowed to say what they want and who gets away with it almost always scot-free. It's certainly not the likes of Mm. Paul Murray who, um, who is punished or who has severe career, safety, livelihood consequences. Which is, yeah, why? Embrace your anger, be angry, don't be afraid of it, just use it to galvanise yourself into action. And mm. I don't mean that you have to yell at everybody on the street. <laughs> I mean, you can. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, if that works for you, go out and howl at the moon. And then I don't mean that you have to scream it at everybody. I mean, if you want to scream at someone, you should be able to do that. I just mean, like, don't be afraid of your anger. Don't don't have shame in your anger when it's coming up against injustice. You are angry for a reason. Mm. And we just saw an entire Australian electorate be angry and we've woken up this morning going, oh, fuck, that felt good. (laughs) (laughs) So do it. Be angry. Let's hear some questions from the floor. Thank you, everyone. Um, 
There was a lot of little treats in last night's selection. Um, Dai Lee winning in Fowler. A lot of um, men that were flagged to be Prime Minister one day losing their seats entirely was kind of something quite enjoyable to watch. Self-flagged um, to be Prime Minister, which is my <laughs> yeah, favourite well, point. Something that I enjoyed the most and um, noticed through Anthony Albanese's campaign was the way that he really owned embodying a different kind of masculinity to mm. um, the leaders that we've seen. And in his kind of um, in his acceptance speech, he he said that he wasn't here to take up space; he was here to unite. Um, and I'm just interested in your thoughts as to whether you think Australia collectively has kind of moved to valuing a different kind of man and a different kind of leader to what we've seen. Yeah, look, I hope so. And the, last night's uh, results, not just with Albanese, but with Dai Li, with the independents, I think that's what we're seeing, that people... Um, it feels as though Scott Morrison with the trans community used an election tactic that Howard used with Tampa and the refugees, pick on the most marginalised and vulnerable group shit on them, they're powerless, they can't fight back and make everyone fear them. But Australia said, no, we, we, we le- I think, I hope Australia said, no, we learnt about that um, and that we're going to be tough on the most vulnerable people and children po- possible. Um, we realise that that's not tough, that's a bully. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm really excited for, about his rhetoric um, and I hope he... Um, he certainly follows through. And I think this is a discussion we were having back there. You know, as journalists, it's important for us to approach our craft with objectivity. We all have our biases, unconscious or otherwise, and we all have opinions. And so this notion that we should always be incredibly objective, I just think is is not fair. But I can objectively say that I was howling in, in delight last night. Um, but that is not to say that I won't scrutinise Labor like I, I did very openly Keneally when she was parachuted in and I'm so happy that went to an independent. Um, but, um, so yeah, that's just a little aside as journos. Um, but I do think, I hope that he's showing, um, you know, whether it's his story of his story of origin, his, his, his current family situation and he's in a new relationship um, and the, the way he talks about diverse communities. Um, and the way he wants them to be part of the national conversation. I hope that rhetoric, um, you know, stay, is, shown, is shown in policy. And um, I, I, there's a story about the Labor campaign that might play into this. You know how they always have the photos, like the family photos, and to advertise themselves, and sometimes you Photoshop shoes into them, and, you know, <laughs> that sometimes you show raw curry um, just to try and, like, prove yourself as a man of the people. When Labor was coming up with how do we present Anthony Albanese to the Australian population because he doesn't have the traditional family anymore, the traditional, um, they were coming up with a whole bunch of ideas and Anthony Albanese went, I just want my dog in there. <laughs> he has this little white dog called Toto yeah. and he wanted, he loves Toto and he just wanted photos of him and Toto because like to him that is family, that is home. He's somebody who calls his, his almost adult son, I think Nathan is 20 or 21, darling. He's... And I'm not saying that he's a hero. There's obviously a lot that is still wrong with Australian politics. But Anthony Albanese came up in a different 
way mm. to how we have seen leaders. He might have gone to the Sydney University and done the debates, but the path that he got to get to those debates is so wildly different to everything that we know about Australian leaders. It wasn't handed to him. Even within the Labor movement, he was never aligned to a union. He's not a creature of the unions. He's somebody who just went, I believe in your message because your message and the work that you did enabled me to get to this point and I want to be able to open the door wider to allow other people through mm. like I came through. Mm. Whether that means that Australia is ready for a different type of masculinity, I'm not sure, but I do know from the focus groups and the pollings that when Scott Morrison barreled over a seven-year-old, <laughs> there were men who went, that's pretty well done. And there were women who went, that, that's, not, that's not right. What is, he doing on, what is he doing on the field? And then that made other people think, do we really want somebody, this blokey guy who donned baseball caps for the first time round that he was going for election to prove that he was one of the people who then just, you know, rolled out like his wife is the country's conscience who then just turned around and said, oh, I'm a bulldozer and I know I need to change. Oh, what's wrong with being a bulldozer? It's strength that got That's us through. That's the seven-year-old. Yeah, yeah. And then, yes, yeah, small target strategy took out a seven-year-old. Uh, and then his right-hand man said, oh, there were errors on both their yes. sides. Is that the sort of man that we want representing Australia? And I think that... Maybe we want a woman representing well, Australia. Just put a wild idea out there. Just plant it. Well, we didn't have a, we didn't have a choice. No, I know. But, <laughs> like moving forward. but moving forward. Yeah. And I think that that was a galvanising moment where we went, who do we want Australia to look like and what groundwork do we want to lay for Australia in the future? Um, over here. Um, Antoinette, I think this question's maybe um, particularly for you. Um, when you are um, of a marginalised group, um, I agree that anger is a good thing, but often it is also counterproductive. Um, how do you think it should best be na navigated? Um, that's a really good question, and it's something that I have had to navigate. Um, I've spent about half of my career in, in commercial television, um, which is, um, you know, a very different beast. And I was always well aware of the fact that I was not only the only person from the Western suburbs on the editorial team, but I was the only person um, from a working class background and uh, with an Arab background. So for a long time, I was, I had to control my anger and I had to be um, a very good minority. Um, and I had to, I had to please, I had to be a palatable um, exception. Um, because people like exceptions um, rather than actually really allowing difference to have a seat at the table. I've learnt to... I only really got to a position where I was able to feel comfortable showing my anger when I was comfortable with what I was prepared to lose because I knew that... It, I know that it comes at a cost. I knew that I couldn't just say what I thought and challenge things without there being consequences at a friendship level, at, a, at an employment level. 
And it wasn't until I felt okay enough with myself and I had resolved, I was like, okay. And even in writing this book, I was okay with the fact that I might lose my job. I, I had actually, I, I resigned from 10 about a month ago, but that was on good terms. But I was, I had to accept the fact that I had to, I may lose my job. So I think it's A, being really realistic with yourself about your position. And it's okay if you're in a position where you can't lose your job, because I don't know what your family circumstance is, um, or your mental health can't take the public criticism you'll get. The other thing I've learned to do, and that's some of the tools um, in my book, which um, look into social psychology of change and what people respond to, is understanding the psychology of influence, um, how to get people over the line, that anger, you may need to process it, but it doesn't change people's hearts and minds if they see you angry, um, necessarily. Um, and so I have learned to identify the audience that is most likely to respond to that. So we, uh, we, we look at change um, and audiences, I guess, uh, more, most broadly on a scale of one to five with um, ones being your heart agrees or your allies, which I would hope some of you in this room are today, um, and five being Craig Kelly. Um, and then there are, and it's important to identify those two people, but to also know that most people lie in the twos, threes and fours. And they're the movable model that might be a little bit sceptical, they might be a bit curious, they might have their questions. Um, and how is it that if you, want, if you really want to change things, you need to influence people in the middle? And anger alone doesn't work. Um, sometimes you need to use humour. Sometimes you need to congratulate people for, for things like, I really love your swipe, striped sweater, your jeans are great, love your boots, but your hair, you know, um, rather than your hair. Um, and it's really hard because a lot of these things we should be angry about. We should be angry about the fact that um, the highest uh, Indigenous population, so the highest prison population and fastest growing is Indigenous women. Um, we should be angry about certain injustices, but unfortunately, anger alone isn't going to lead to change. But it's okay to feel that anger. That sounds exhausting. I know. <laughs> and sometimes I get it really wrong and you'll see me very angry on, on no, Twitter. No, no, it sounds exhausting and I, and I wonder about burnout. Right. Uh, just let me ask this question, then we'll go to the gentleman over yeah. here. I, I do wonder about burnout. When when you're still the only, and there's not a cohort of people um, who are not looking like me mm. in the room, mm. who are not talking like me, an upper middle class woman who's had a private education, which is like the normal way to talk, mm. right? In that in that culture, in, yeah. in in that work culture, how exhausting is it to tr to try and navigate? a way to have influence and without sounding different, without having to kind of uh, ape that, um, that, that, that culture that, in essence, is what you want to change. Yeah, it is. It's it's really difficult, and it's not for everyone. And I have other people of colour um, here in the room, um, and others who are in filmmaking and media, um, and have other kind of public jobs who say, "Oh man, like we just it's it's we just." can't touch it because it's too hard. We can't talk about change. We can't do things. It's just too hard. And we don't think, we think we're going to say something. We will never come back or do something. It will never come back. It is really difficult. But you also know that as one of the first or one of the only few, it's, in, it's unfair, but there's a responsibility to keep the door open for others. Um, to ensure that there's a pathway, to ensure that you inspire. So when I got into got into media, my careers advisor at my very horrible public school, which uh, more people graduated that joined the common sheroes that went to university. It's, that's not a joke. They actually did. And I was told from year 10 that I should just consider going to TAFE and that university wasn't for me. Um, and so 
continually having to prove that you can do things. And I just want to ensure that for the other young women from refugee backgrounds or from diverse communities or who don't think that they have a place to have a voice in the national conversation. They look to people like me, like Waleed Ali, like Jan Fran. We all know each other because about five of us. Um, <laughs> they look to people um, like Bridget Brennan, Brooke Boney, and they look mm -hmm. to us and go, okay, maybe that can be me. Maybe, maybe my stories matter. Maybe me telling stories matter. So it's not fair. It is tiring, but um, hopefully it will help the next generation. Mm. It is a lot easier to be white and angry. It's, that's absolutely a fact. We are really, really hard on brown, black, you know, any any other culture for being angry. Uh, and it is also the role as white allies not to speak for any other community, but to give up space to allow other voices. And we need to be better at that immediately. Like, you know, it's we know we know what we have to do. We just have to cede some space and allow it to be a safe Thank space. Mm. And sometimes it's about just listening. Like I went to, I tell this story in my book, it's hilarious and horrific. Um, my husband and I went to a wedding. He's oh very God. tall, very dark skinned, very handsome. Um, and we were the only not people of colour in, in the room. It was a uh, white television type of marriage. Um, Did it last? Yes, it actually yeah, okay. so far. Yes. Um, and anyway, but my friend, friends, you know, was good friends with the bride, lovely people. But you just notice these things when you walk in. You just go, hmm, okay, we're the only people here. But it's just an observation. Just like if some of you went to a Lebanese wedding, you'd walk in and go, hmm, we're the only white people here. It was just a fleeting observation. We had a lovely time. We drank, we danced. Um, and as we came to leave at the end, the, we came and uh, my husband shook the groom's head. We said, thank you. And then the groom turned to my husband and said, thank you so much for the music. You did a really good job. And then he turned to me and said, and the girls, the bride and the bridesmaids hair and makeup looks amazing. Um, and then we were just like, what the fuck was that? And we were just so shocked. And then we walked out and we, and he was like, yeah, he thought we were like, like he thought we were here working. Um, and I don't, I don't want to say, use the word the help because I know that has, you know, connotations from African-American, but he, we, he, we, he thought we were there in a, in a paid capacity um, and rather than his wedding guests. And that's just one example of what happens to people when your idea of power or who's, who's because he was quite a successful businessman and she was a presenter, uh, that the only people in that like the only reason we would be in that room was to provide a good or service. But I love that your conclusion was we should have hit him up for the money. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I what know. Charge that guy. I know. <laughs> Thousands. But just just to circle, just square the circle on that. There is a wonderful essay if you haven't read it from Roxanne Gay. It was a brilliant writer in America mm. called In Defence of Thin Skin. And she basically argues that being thick skin should not be seen as an attribute. Yeah. That we should be allowed to be offended. Mm -hmm. And if we are hurt, we should be allowed to voice that we are hurt. And we shouldn't keep telling people just to have a thick skin because it's actually damaging the fabric yes. of our society. And that really resonated mm -hmm. with me because there are so many cuts that we take every single day. All of us, we all take little micro cuts and some of us take more cuts than others. Oh. 
because of the way we look like, because of our mobility, because of just our, our differences, every single cuts. If you have a facial distance, uh, difference in this country, you are stared at mm. every single time you walk out the door and it would be exhausting. Mm. So don't always think that you have to apologise for being offended either. We need to start changing the conversation away from being strong enough yeah. to take and I, it. I will add to that. I think that was sorry, so it was a point of that funny little wedding anecdote. That in itself was like, oh, my gosh, can't believe that happened. But what happened afterwards when I told a mutual friend, that was almost more wounding because in that instance I needed, uh, she was also a white woman, I just needed someone to listen and be like, oh, fuck, shit. Um, really? How do you feel? Instead, the response I got was, was your husband standing near the DJ? Um, your hair did look really nice. Like all of these, like your hair did really look really nice that day. I'm like, thank you, but also, like, no. Like, have, can you just listen and accept that this is how casual racism exists? This is how just 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 digest for a moment and go. Maybe I I could possibly do this. You know, sometimes it's just listening and reflecting because I don't believe that groom set out to be awful. Yeah. Yeah. He just did it because his probably only interaction uh, with people of colour is mm. in a service capacity. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's just about listening and reflecting. It's not about offering excuses. It's not about telling telling people like me or you to have a thick skin. It's mm. just or, going, you're you know, or, yeah, or you're imagining it. Yeah, or you're imagining it. Mm. Sorry, I think there's another question. I'm a white male, obviously, very considerable privilege. Oh. Uh, is, you, is your name Andrew? No. no. <laughs> um, name's Graham. But Hi, I went Graham. to uh, Sansan University, well-paid job, live in a very nice house in a very nice part of Sydney. Wonderful. But my earliest memories were I grew up in an Aboriginal community in Arnhem Land and I was one of probably a handful of people with white skins in a community of hundreds of people with black skins. But I have this incredibly good memory of being totally welcomed, totally included, I belong there. Mm. They never said to me, you don't belong, you're the wrong colour, you're the wrong skin. And even if I go back to this day, I still get that sense of inclusion and belonging. So I don't disagree with anything you people have said about anger and the negative emotions, but I guess my question is, what about the positive emotion? My view of migrants is that they should be included. We should say, welcome, you're now part of this country, you belong here. We shouldn't say, you know, go back where you came and all that stuff. But I just see there's this dichotomy. On one hand, lots and lots of negative, but my sense of belonging is an incredibly positive experience. And I'd just like you to reflect on whether there is a positive, inclusive side as well. Um, I think it's really easy to be inclusive when you have the power structure, when you're part of it. And I would, I would wonder whether your friends in Arnhem Land would have the same experience if they walked into your world. I'm just, I'm just like my, my family is, 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 is a migrant family on my father's side, obviously not of colour, but um, at one point in Australia was the bad guys. Mm. We, you know, we were all communists because we were Eastern European and, you know, it, like my surname was enough to mark me as, as different. It is not at all a comparable experience to what a lot of migrants in this country go through. And I'm not pretending that it is, but I do have a tiny insight into it. And I mean no disrespect with this. But every time we talk about this sort of stuff, we always hear, but what about the good stuff? Mm -hmm. What about the inclusivity? What about the positive aspects? 
And obviously they exist, but they don't exist on an equal playing field, and that, that's the issue. And I wonder, Antoinette, um, to, to, the, to the point that's been raised, which is you know, bringing a really interesting dynamic to this conversation, I notice when people come on the program, um, the exhaustion and emotional energy they have to bring to describing over and over again that there is such a thing as structural racism in this country and it exists. And their capacity to have a conversation beyond that when talking about these issues, not when talking about tax reform, because mm. everybody can talk about tax reform or everybody can talk about climate, right, right? But when talking about this issue is until you've got that recognition, it's very hard to stop banging on about this mm. negative because we will it seems to me, as a society, not face the fact. Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. It feels like with this election outcome, for example, as a side issue, we've seemed to have finally accepted that climate change is a thing um, and that we need to do something about it. But for so long, we had to just keep pushing and banging our heads, and that is exhausting. But, Graeme, I take your point that sometimes it's difficult to, to respond to the negative. People do need encouragement. We're human beings, and that's part of when we look but, at... But if you're being diminished and, and, and the whole time saying, well, your chance of getting a job, Antoinette, is exactly the same as my chance of getting a job, and there's no difference between us because we've both or been the in the best, media a long the time. the person gets the job, you know, that or, bullshit. Or that, or that Nardole Nguyen doesn't get any more um, hate on the television than... Um, um, uh, say, a Jenny Hewitt yeah. from the Australian Financial Review who gets a lot of negative comments yeah. from the left. And there's not a distinction between those two that, as last I checked, Jenny Hewitt never had to have the police come around to her house because people were threatening to mm. kill her, right, after coming on the show. I'm not particularly speaking about Nidal there, but I'm speaking about people who have yeah. been on the show. And that there is a distinct difference in who is allowed to speak and when they insist that their experiences of racism in Australia are real, the firestorm yeah. of, um, of fury that they get of how dare you suggest that this egalitarian, multicultural, multi-ethnic country of ours has any flaws, right? Yeah, that, that, that is, I mean, I do take your point, but I, I also take Graham's point that, um, <laughs> and I, I do feel there has been a shift. I do think there is an appetite to talk about things that perhaps in a pre-Black Lives Matter era, and it's and, I, and, and by saying that, I know Black Lives have mattered and uh, Indigenous Australians have been fighting for Black Lives for hundreds of years. But since that George Floyd moment, and even the people of colour I speak to in my group, in my book, including Indigenous voices, who Indigenous practitioners who've been working in this space for 20 years, they do feel a renewed sense of hope. There's this, they don't want to be too optimistic, but they do feel an appetite for change, that Australians who have previously not cared too much or spoken too much about black rights or about refugee groups are now more open to the conversation. So for that, I am hopeful and that and that's part of why I wrote that book. It's also part of why I was able to get a major publisher like Penguin to, to publish this book. I'm not sure that five years ago with that title that I would have been published. So I think we do need to pat ourselves on the back, but like a pat of like these proportions, mm. you know? Mm. Um, and so we are moving in the right direction, but it is really... It's really important to, people will often say, well, it's a lot better than it was now. And it's like, yeah, sure, we're not like shooting Indigenous people at the shore um, as, we, as we arrive on our, um, onto the nation. So yeah, I guess in that regard, things have gotten a bit better. Um, but it's, 
it can sometimes feel that you're diminishing the ongoing struggles and the very real struggles that people continue to face. Mm. Um, and so, yes, we should be optimistic. Yes, we... and, and the burden that they're carrying that you described before of constantly having to demonstrate that it's true, to prove that it's true, as Amy wrote in her book, to prove that misogyny is a thing, to prove that racism yeah. is a thing over and over and over again, when, as you just said, you'd rather just do your job. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I would. Um, yeah. Can I just add one, one last thing? Um, and and irrespective of where you are placed, you know, you had mentioned that you went to a sandstone university, you went to a private school. And, and I think one of the first things we need to do is just own who we are and where we came from and do away with whatever guilt like that, that associates with it. Like some people go, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a man. I'm, you know, I don't know what I should say. And it's like, well, it's, it's great that you're in this room. It's great that you're listening. I'm a white privileged person. Yeah, cool. But that's just your starting place. It's not your resting place. Let's just identify where we are. Like I know I'm an Arab woman who doesn't wear a hijab. I know that's why I got a job in commercial television. Do I feel guilty about it? No, I, I'm just pragmatic and realistic about the fact that that's probably, um, not probably, it's why I was able to get a job in commercial television. Um, and that's okay, but that doesn't mean that that's my resting place. It just means I know where I, where I, I know the power I have. I now have a lot more power and privilege than little Antoinette from Maryland's High. Um, and but then you go, okay, what more can I do for people who are less powerful than me, um, who are more targeted than me? And that's all I can really ask of anybody in this room. Very yeah. good. We have... Um, very good. Can we hear questions back to back? So you ask your question and the lady behind you asks a question and then we'll, we'll see if we can do it in two minutes and 53 seconds. Um, following last night's results, um, it seems to me that there's probably going to be some kind of a, a reckoning or come to Jesus moment for conservative politics, maybe also for conservative media in terms of where does it go from here? Does it go with the winds of change or does it double down on positions that have been baked mm -hmm. in? Um, and so... Uh, Antoinette, when it comes to discussing you know, cultural bias and racism, Amy, when it comes to uh, gender equality, sexual misconduct, um, and I suppose further to you know, what Paul Murray was saying last night as well, um, how worried are you that the discourse mm -hmm. is going to get worse before mm -hmm. it gets better, um, you know, you know, especially given how the discourse is going in America right now? And I'd like to hear from this one as well. Hi, my name is Shema. I am a journalism student at Wisconsin University, and my question is, um, for someone like me who is trying to enter the media, obviously I have a combination of disadvantages there. Um, so how do I overcome that and try to make media seize me as what can I offer instead of who I am? Um, and, if, and avoid getting there just because the organization just wants to take that artificial diversity. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to need an hour. Yeah. <laughs> just say, just because we're recording, say your name really loudly into the microphone. <laughs> go on, do it. Shema Abdul Latif. Okay, okay, there we right, go. Do you want to take the first one and I'll take the I'll take the, the political one very quickly. Um, I think that the future of the Liberal Party rests on how it responds to what has just happened. Mm -hmm. If Peter Dutton becomes leader of the <laughs> Liberal Party, I think it is signing its own fate there as the Liberal Party that we know it as. This is something that started way back when John Howard defeated, well, you know, lost against Andrew Peacock, Peacock. and then just spent all of that time undermining what the Liberal Party of Menzies stood for. 
Uh, and so, I mean, we've had several people come out today, including, you know, Alex Antic, uh, you know, Matt Canavan, a lot of political commentators on the right who said that this, this lesson that Australia went to more progressive politicians proves that the Liberal Party was too progressive and they need to go further to the right. <laughs> So that's that's the battle that's going on at the moment. She so. got away with words, hasn't she? <laughs> So and the future of the Liberal Party is going to be highlighted by who they choose as a leader. If they choose someone from the right, if the moderates that are left, there's about four of them, I think, um, including the Senate, if they are able to find some sort of soft centre and start going more to the centre and finding you know, mm. policies where they can say, okay, we believe in science, we believe in equality and we believe in making a difference, but we're still going to care about tax. If they can find that, then maybe they'll be okay. If not, I think you're going to see a split in the Liberal Party. And I would not be surprised if within five years, the coalition is over and done with. Are we okay for time? Shamsia, um, gosh, let me talk to you after this because there's so much to talk about and I'd love to connect. But I guess one of the reasons um, I co-founded Media Diversity Australia five years ago was to help provide pathways for people like you um, who absolutely have a role in our media. Um, and we are seeing those changes. We, for the, the ABC, for example, um, on, on to their breakfast reporter, uh, a wonderful, wonderful thinker and journalist who wears a hijab. And I believe that's... Um, the first or second time in Australia that's ever happened. Um, and so change is coming. It is still difficult. It can still feel like a box-sticking exercise. And a lot of uh, people of colour who come through wonder if they're there because um, they really be should be there or because somebody has told the recruiters to they have to hire diversely. And that's always the tension with change in the first instance. Um, it can feel difficult when you're part of that change. There can be hostility around you. Um, there can be those microaggressions. Mm. Just even recently, I was um, filling in at the ABC for a presenter. And when I came in, somebody asked me if I was there as um, for work experience. Um, and I was like, no, I'm the, I'm, pre I'm presenting today. And there's like, oh, 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 was his response to me. I've been on this horrible overnight shift for 15 years. Yeah. You know, like yeah. really, and you, you sometimes get that pushback, which I mean. And did you say, well, maybe you're just not very good at it? <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> no? No. That would I be the kind of, thing. I just no. kind of laugh because I'm used to that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. it is difficult um, and it's, it's really up to organisations to make sure that their workplaces are inclusive mm. because there's no point bringing somebody like you into an environment that is going to set you up for lack of support, for microaggressions and just to make you feel worse about yourself. Mm. But that's a much longer conversation. Read my book, Connect With Me, and I'd love to help, I'd love to help and out. And all, all I would say, you know, from Antoinette's book and, and you know, all the experiences that she shared is um, the men called Andrew never question why they're there. Yeah. And you shouldn't either. Thank you all so much. Thank you to our uh, last contributor. Um, there are book signings. Book signings are outside. Uh, um, Amy will be awake for at least another um, 25 minutes. Barely. So uh, if you want your book signed by Amy, I'd rush. Thank you so much for coming and for listening. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.